Welcome to the Italian Wine Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Vinitali International Academy, announcing the 24th of our Italian Wine Ambassador courses to be held in London, Austria, and Hong Kong from the 27th to the 29th of July. Are you up for the challenge of this demanding course? Do you want to be the next Italian Wine Ambassador? Learn more and apply now at vinitaliinternational.com. Thanks for tuning in to Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People on the Italian Wine Podcast. I'm Steve Ray, your host, and this podcast features interviews with the people actually making a difference in the Italian wine market in America, their experiences, challenges, and personal stories. And I'll be adding a practical focus to the conversation based on my 30 years in the business. So if you're interested in not just learning how, but also how else, then this pod is for you. Hello, and welcome to this week's edition of Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People. This week, I'm pleased to have as a guest Tara Empson, who is the CEO of Empson USA. And if you're not familiar with them, well, Tara's going to explain who they are. Tara, why don't you tell us a little bit about your company? Well, hello, everyone, and thank you so much for listening today. Uh, thank you, Steve, for, for having me on this wonderful podcast with you. As uh, Steve mentioned, my name is Tara Empson. I am the very fortunate daughter uh, to bring on a legacy of my parents. My parents are Neil and Maria Empson. Well, long story short, they met on a blind date in New York, and uh, they both told each other how they were never going to get into another serious relationship. And 11 days later, my father proposed. Neither of my parents came from a wine background. As a matter of fact, uh, my mother was born in Rhode Island from Italian heritage. My father was born in New Zealand. But my mother studied at a very young age. She left home, and uh, she studied at the Accademia delle Belle Arti in Firenze. She was an artist, and my father was in a very passionate about cars. And we're talking about certain types of cars, uh, which I'll get into. But this said, after they, uh, my father proposed, my mother's dream was always to go back to Italy, because that's where her heart was. And uh, so they, uh, they ventured there. At, uh, they were in their 30s at that time. And um, my father, actually, well, my mother was painting and my father would go around Italy and search for these cars that Italians at the time didn't even know that they had or what they were sitting on. We're talking Ferraris. We're talking all sorts of cars. My father's passion was to tune these cars up and bring, you know, bring them back to life. And he would post the ad on the Herald Tribune. And uh, drive them up to the south. They drive them to the south of France and sell them. When they would sell these cars, they with that little money that they would make, they would go out and celebrate. And then that's how they got introduced to Italian wine. They would go to these restaurants and drink these wines. And you know, we're talking about a very different wine world back in the late sixties, early seventies. And a lot of their story was finding these wineries. So they would get in the car drive around Italy, find these producers, shake hands, and start this relationship. And that's how they were introduced to the beautiful world of Italian wines. So obviously times have changed and handshakes do turn into contracts. But um, you know, we still represent some of the wineries that my dad himself and my mother would go around and, and scout. 
to this day. So this is where their love for Italian wine started. Okay, so they're not involved in the business anymore. You're running it now. Am I correct? Uh, that's, a, that's a trick question. My father will never retire, but uh, I do the paperwork. <laughs> I can understand that. Okay. And how many states uh, are you guys operating in? Are you fully national or? Yes, we are. We are fully national, and uh, but we also export wine in about 35 countries in the world. Export wines from Italy to other countries or from America? We have our main hub is in Milano, Italy, and then we have a, a headquarters here in Alexandria, Virginia. We also have another headquarter in uh, Alberta, in Canada, in Calgary. And um, yes, and then we also have Emson in Japan. And so we, uh, we we like to position ourselves globally. Okay, so uh, I'm hearing this, and it's it's a very different type of a description of a of an import organization from the many different types that I'm familiar with. What defines Emson USA, and what differentiates you from others of either a similar size or a similar set of focus? For example, Italian specialty importers. Absolutely. Uh, so for starters, we we are present in Italy. That's where our main hub, our main headquarters are. So we're there. We're there with the producers. This always makes a difference for us in the sense that if you know if we we drive to the wineries, we meet face to face. I know technology has changed a lot of this, but we're there. We talk every day. We we, we are connected with the wine um, world in Italy. So that is also very key, fundamental for us. Um, you know, we we. Also have a very good, you know, with the export and, and with logistics, we are involved. And I always think that this is very important for us. We're not separate from the wineries. We are there with them. And this has always proven to be very, very important in time, you know, especially when certain situation um, arise and everything else. We, we get in the car and we go there physically. We are on the spot to talk to you. So let me just jump right into that one because it's a point of not contention, but reality that we all have to deal with. One of the issues everybody in the industry is facing is the challenges of logistics from at minimum just finding enough containers to consolidating freight and less than full container orders and increase in shipping rates, you know, two to three to more times. And then, of course, the problems in the ports. It's a big challenge for many of the wineries that I deal with that they're sitting on orders and the wine's floating on the ocean. How do you guys deal with that situation now? And where do you think that's going? Uh, well, that is a very interesting question. And uh, to answer that, there is, there, it's, it's a problem. Uh, well, it's a situation that is felt down the entire chain. So it, not only in the wine industry, in all industries right now. So starting from the lack of, uh, you know, uh, primary goods, such as bottles, paper, packaging, pallets, all of these things, uh, the increase in the energy uh, fees, gas prices, everything, um, our price list and all price lists, as a matter of fact, have gone up because just the expense of running day to day operations on behalf of the wineries has increased. This is leaving less and less room, obviously, for them to to to, you know, manage everything. And it is a major problem. We have had reports from wineries saying, I've sold my wine, but I cannot find the packaging to actually deliver the wine. Um, you know, and all of this, and, and especially coming out of COVID in which we, you know, during COVID, we had all that time there in which we couldn't, we couldn't find anyone to sell the wine, especially if you were on-premise focused to having such a rapid uh, a market as far as just recuperating and, and what people want and not being able to deliver 
it's 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 almost like I, I'm sorry to say this, almost like a cruel joke, you know, in some uh, in some retrospect. Um, but yes, this is a, a we we there is a massive shortage of containers. A lot, you know, during the pandemic, a lot of the goods came from China and other countries. Amazon, as we all know, took over the delivery system, took over big time, and so a lot of the uh, containers were rerouted. The problem is trying to get them back. So and also the the cost. I mean, we've had exponential cost per container and spaces and everything and weight. And, and even the other day, we just got a new price increase on containers. But to answer your question more specifically, there's a waiting line. Everybody is waiting in line. So even I mean, I'm sorry to say this, um, you know, even talking with uh, with, you know, our uh, people who ship the wine for us at this point, even if if you were to cancel an order, you'd only do them a favor. That's how backed up they are. That's how much pressure they're getting. And it's not just one, it's all shipping companies. Because remember, we've gone from a lot of independents to the big companies buying them up. So when you look at flexibility as far as shipping, you're dealing with, you know, pretty much four or five main structures. Yeah, Telebrand just uh, got bought and consolidated into, I, I forget who did it, but something larger. So what are you guys doing about that? How are you dealing with it? What are the practicalities of how you're addressing, if not solving that problem? Addressing is, well, I mean, <laughs> addressing is get in line, try to be as proactive as possible. Organization is key. You cannot leave things into last minute. But also the other part of the challenge is being able to try and stay ahead of the curve, but without overloading yourself. So, for example, when the tariffs came out, and I know I'm veering off subject here, but or when other situations happened in the past, what a lot of people would do is just, you know, get caught up by anxiety and ship everything into the market. And then what? Do you, what's the problem? You're sitting on a whole lot of goods and that's a cost as well. So you're trying to do things in a way that allows you the right amount of shipping calculating the shipping time costs and everything else, but not overloading yourself. So that's something that's, you know, that's always the fine dance and the fine games of, you know, well, not necessarily games, but the fine situations that we also try and, and be mindful of because things, things as we have seen in the past years are changing day to day from moment to moment and everything else. But yes, we try, you know, as soon as we can get a container, we block it, whatever we have to pay, we have to pay the, so two things can happen. The reality of this is one is out of stocks and the other one is an impact on pricing as your costs go up. How are you dealing with uh, the out of stocks issue? We see it in many stores, not just uh, liquor stores, but grocery stores as well. I mean, different brands of brand loyalty has kind of gone out the window. You buy what they have. Right. That is very correct. We have that. We, we do have that problem. It is a problem I wish I did not have. <laughs> we went from, you know, having surplus to now being out of stock. So, again, going back to what we were saying, but yes, that that is absolutely correct on all goods, by the way, whether it is hard liquor, whether it's spirits, whether it's, you know, everything is, um, you know, especially when you when you talk to restaurateurs, they're always uh, out of stock on something and looking for replacements. So you are correct. There is a shifting brand loyalty. Is it permanent? I'm not sure. But, you know, people have to sell. There is demand. So what are you doing as a company to address that problem for your products that are out of, st out of stock or the opportunities for other products that are out of stock that yours may be a substitute for. So there are two, two, uh, okay. So to be very blunt, with all fairness, we try to divide it in two. So we have our key items that we know we have to continue shipping because we do have a demand on such products. But when you go into the smaller, more esoteric type of products, it's difficult really to 
uh, ship them because those are, you know, whatever you get or whatever clients you have. So you do have that situation happening. And the out of stock seems to be uh, present a little bit more on, on um, you know, uh, how, how can I define this on, um, you know, smaller items or smaller wineries or niche products rather than the hard, the volumetrics, because those, you know, you have a continuity, you also have bigger clientele. So you tend to have more repetition in far as containers and orders on those items. But this said, a container can come in and be blocked. A ship can be in the port now for two weeks and or a month sometimes, and you cannot get that container on dry on dry land. So a lot of these things are, are going to be out of our control. Um, we do have we as as everybody else. I mean, people we have customers that do complain about this. We try to be as proactive. We try to listen. We try to do it. But unfortunately, a lot of things that we're going through at this moment today are going to be out of our control. Hopefully, tomorrow they won't. Okay. Well, let's let's take a specific instance, and I think this is where we we turn a negative into a positive. Particular on premise account, maybe a big influential place in any given city can't get the ones that were you know uh, the, on their core list, and there's a, a window of opportunity. You're not going to replace what was there, but uh, you know ongoing business, but there might be an opportunity to fulfill or fill that hole. How are you doing that with your sales team to identify those opportunities and then um, capitalize on them? Say, uh, I'm making one up. My Italian restaurant in New York City has always been selling Capizana Barco Reale. Okay. Now that's out of stock. I don't know if it is or not. We used to import it. So that's why I'm thinking about it. You may have a substitute for that or a replacement for that in your portfolio. Are your salespeople aware of those things? And if so, are they taking advantage of those opportunities to get the sale for your brand and potentially supplant? Ab- absolutely. Absolutely. Um, that's that. Again, that's a very good question. We, we are. I mean, those are the relationships that our team have with uh, specific clients. You know, you walk in, you're like, you know, hi, uh, Johnny, let's, you know, how are you? How's everything going? And, you know, you go through that five minute talk. Oh, my God, I'm out of wine, this and this and that. And then, you know, it's going, you know, what, what can I, what, what do you need? What, what can we get you? And it's like, yes, I'm, I'm out of stock on this item. Do you have a, do you have a Chianti Classico or do you have a Sangiovese? And that's, you know, if, if we can fulfill that need, of course, there are opportunities. Of course, my question through all of is um, you know a lot of these reports that we, we we've already had, and the big question mark is when. Uh, uh, sorry, just because we we mentioned that when Capitana comes back in, will they go back to Capitana or remain with our product? That is a good question. Um, a lot of it is also the consumer. Is the consumer going to be bothered by the fact that they're drinking something else and be turned on by that, or are they? As soon as Capitan is back in, are they going to prefer to revert back to what they know? Yeah, well, at basis or at, at its basic level, it's an opportunity to taste people on it, and you have you know, resurrect the the discussion, which may not have been possible before. Okay, let's go back. And um, one of the things that uh, you explained to me when we had our original conversation, because of the history of your parents uh, and your father, particularly. You've had many of these wineries for over 50 years. Talk about that. Why that's important. Um, is, it a, is it a benefit? Is it a good thing? And how has that progressed? And where do you think that kind of a concept of this relationship that you have with family to family sits in the world of wine, which is getting a little bit more cutthroat? 
No, absolutely. I, I love that question. And um, so for starters, yes, we, we have wineries that we are so grateful to be representing for over uh, 40, a lot of them definitely 50 years. And why does that mean a lot? It means a lot because as you, as you very well mentioned, in the world of today, relationships, you know, they come and go. There's a lot of options out there. We are used to being ha- almost at times having too many options of what we're doing. Um, and you know, when you se- when you say you celebrate forty or fifty years, it sounds you know it sounds wonderful. But as everybody knows with relationships, what is fifty years? Fifty years means continuing to trust each other, weathering the bad times, being there for each other, developing what is um, trust and and unity and 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 just the the just so many factors of being able to weather the storm and come out of it stronger together. And knowing that, you know, it's not going to be a relationship that's here and gone tomorrow. And especially with, you know, and that also translates as far as distribution. You know, our distributors, you know, they love the fact that, you know, you have a brand for over 50 years because, you know, also for the distributors, there's, you know, as we know, the distribution network is huge. And every other day when you're changing wineries and for the client as well, you know, you're coming in one day with this guy and the other day with this guy, oh, we don't have them anymore. And, um, and this and that. So, you know, when you're, when you have continuity, it, it says a lot, it says a lot for the person that you are, for how you take care of the people that you that you have and 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 your partners. Yeah, I think uh, as you described that now and and prior, you know, we're normally our relation uh, when when we're dealing with an uh, individual winery, usually it's a function of uh, disagreement in terms of volumes, objectives, and revenues and margins, the business of the business, if you will. And those are still obviously always going to be important, but over a time period of fifty years. Any given year where you meet or didn't meet, exceeded or didn't meet the objective um, kind of pales in comparison to the overall relationship and how the families, uh, you know, connect and support one another. That's a rare thing these days. If you think about the way the distribution business is consolidated, it used to be run by an individual family in each state and you knew the person who was had the name of that distributor, you know, and, and that was the guy that you dealt with. It usually was a guy. Now with the consolidation, something like, uh, was it 75% of all wine is being handled by 10, the top 10 uh, distributors. That family relationship can no longer exist. Yet in the Italian wine category, it's still critically important and frankly is the one thing that many of the wineries I talk to lead with about the importance of that. Is that like no longer relevant? Are we are we like back in the 60s now? Or how do you guys maintain um, that kind of a distinction in a world where we live in with the web and COVID and war in Ukraine and all this craziness? <laughs> it, it is important to have relationships and it's important to be consistent. It, it's, it's sort of like when you talk about wine scores, right? It's not about getting that 98 point. It's about showing that in time, you've always, con- you've been consistent with your quality. You've been consistent with who you are. Because when you are consistent, there is trust. You know, whether it's Emson or Cobrand or anybody else, you know that when that person walks in, you know, that little logo, who we are, the consumer's not going to care, but the distributor cares because they know that we, they know who we are. They know who, who we're, they're, dealing with. They know our way of working. 
And that means a lot, especially in a world of hectic changes, wines, independence, uh, people trying to go direct, and uh, you know, all these small factors. And the fact that we also do a lot of the back work for distributors and for the wineries facilitates all that. So it, our role is changing. It will always change as an importer. And our role, and you know what it was in in the eighties, is not going to is not going to be what it it's not what it is today. And it's certainly not going to be twenty years from now. But it is very much valued the fact that there is a rapport, there is a a, a way of working, there is a, a a stability in that point of view, especially in a world as we were saying. There's so much there's so much happening every single day. Okay, you had mentioned Cobrand before. Who who do you view as your competitive set? Not your enemies, but I mean people who uh, are in a similar business to yours, carrying a lineup of wineries that are relatively parallel to yours. Who do you, who do you, who do you think you're Well there there there're many there're many uh, you know is there really an enemy in the wine industry no No that's what I'm trying to say this is not a negative question it's uh Sometimes you can get a little bit flustered because you know someone's ahead of the curve and you know we 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 always we always like to think that we're special and unique but I have to say that there're absolutely some wonderful wonderful people who've done so much for the wine world and uh you know going back we we have uh, the utmost respect for co-brand as a matter of fact they also represent one of our wines <laughs> that's how much we love them and uh, I I really feel that if quality is at the forefront quality whatever it may be but if you have you know the you know specific traits that combine that would be someone that I would personally look up to and feel very much united but at the same time even the people who break the mode and let's just say have a very different way of working uh, are people who teach us a lot you know and um you you constantly learn some people do something that you would never dream of doing but they hit the jackpot they do it right and and they're 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 leading they're doing that those are the trend makers when you think about it so everything in good or bad or uncomfortable or bad is um is is wonderful to witness to some degree and um we appreciate that Italian Wine Podcast, part of the Mama Jumbo Shrimp family. Okay, uh, let's change the subjects a little bit. I'm, I'm, here's uh, one of the issues that I find uh, I deal with and many of my colleagues in the trade deal with it is a difference or even a disconnect between a producer's expectations and of what can be accomplished for their wines and the distributor's point of view. And you're there in the middle to try and keep the supplier happy and yet deal with the realities of distribution as we know it in a rapidly changing U.S. market. How do you deal with that disconnect between supplier and distributor? So there are different there are different answers and different factors that contribute to that. So it, it it all depends on what your idea of an investment is and how long you're willing to invest in order to reap the benefits. A lot of um, some people believe, and this sometimes is point of the discord, which um, you make an investment and you're going to make. Uh, you're going to see the benefits tomorrow. The actual process into the U.S. market is actually quite lengthy, from getting TTB approval to getting the distributor on board to doing to, to you know doing the presentations to doing the marketing to doing all of it. So that's also what an importer comes into play because we do all that for you. We have a structure that specializes in doing that. So usually um, we require and we advise that it's about three years 
before you're going to actually see a stability in the market. So the first year usually, uh, let's say the first and end months of the year, because uh, the beginning is just a lot of presentations, you start to get the initial shipment. So then there's a, like a false hope, right? Because each distributor is going to start stocking up on, on items. But then there's a turnaround. So, and then there's computer systems. So once that turnaround happens, usually in the second year, you go through a lull. The lull is waiting for that uh, product to absorb, to start d- defining a trend, to getting the distributor on board, to getting distributor salespeople on board and everything else. Usually by the third year, both the importer and the distributor, based on what you put on the table, whether it's marketing contribution and different, um, you know, different ways of, uh, of routes into market. Then at that point, you start to see what your trend looks like. A lot of wineries, you know, they, they always want to talk volumes first. And you say, oh, but I want to sell, you know, like, you know, 50,000 cases the first year. Fantastic. That's great. With what budget? Because, you know, the distributor, um, they've got a full portfolio. And, you know, everybody wants to be at the top of the top. We always look at the icons and say, well, why, well my wine's even better than theirs. Why can't I be there? Why aren't I getting the same attention Santa Margarita is getting, right? Exactly. And we all know there's a simple answer because Santa Margarita's selling in volumes. It generates the revenues and it warrants the attention. So many of the wineries, when you say marketing support, their expectation based on their experience in selling to other countries is I'm selling you the wine. It's your responsibility to market it. There's no extra dollars there. And I as I talk to new brands, that's one of the things I quote unquote educate them on that in the US, you're in control of what kind of attention your brand is going to get. And investment is a critical component of it. So that's part of the education of getting them ready for the US market. But let's talk about people who have been, been here a long time. Understand that. Are there changes in the way you're spending marketing support dollars, whether it's more or fewer in-store tastings, whether it's uh, depletion allowances, whether it's discounts, you know, on the front end, or you know, how how are you allocating that money? Social media and all these other things, which are more pure type marketing things. What are you guys doing at Emson USA that's different than what you were doing, say, five years ago? So five years ago, we uh, we were very active in you know uh, staff trainings and in person and, and a lot of those things. But obviously, COVID has changed a lot of that. Um, especially you know by we used to do a lot of by the glass. Um, by the glass, a lot of people have a negative connotation about it. But at the end of the day, it, it has it serves as a dual factor. It gets the the consumer to taste it which is the hardest part. And it also generates volumes. And then from there, you can start growing. So we usually, for example, one of the things that we we advise, not all wineries, but we do advise is start giving us a buy the glass price to get it in circulation. Because until it's sold, until it's tasted, you know, we need to get a gauge on this. Everybody wants to be, you know, top end on the bottle uh, on the wine list. Um, and then, you know, that allows us to position, start creating brand awareness. That's extremely important. Because, you know, people want to see repetition or did want to see repetition. As it changed, COVID also changed a lot. So a lot of our marketing dollars right now go into distributor support. So allowing them to, you know, work work with a specific price point. Also, you know, doing all these things. But to answer your question even further, before COVID, we used to do a lot of trips. You know, distributor trips and all these things there. And obviously now a lot of that's been curbed. 
uh, it's been curved very much because, you know, right now we're, we're preferring to invest in, in, you know, just by supporting the distributor because it's just the, because of the three tier system, it's the distributor who's going to get that wine sold. So does that mean that the role of what used to be the press, whether it's consumer press or trade magazines, you know, magazines are not the coolest thing in the world these days, and we all get information in, in different ways. So you used to take people out and we called them fam trips. And, you know, you might have six to 10 or 12, or if it's a big consortium, you know, might have 20 or 30. But the kind of things that your PR agency is doing these days now is these Zoom tastings where you might get 50 or 100 people. Yes, it's a pain in the ass to package the wine in little bottles and send it individually to everybody. I get that. But the reach and the, the cost efficiency of doing that, I think, is better than the, the fam trips. Now, I'm still a fan of fam trips because I get to go on them. But um, do you guys find that that whole Zoom tasting thing is going to continue? To some degree, I do. I do because it allows more flexibility for whomever to participate. So you don't have to get on a flight. You don't have to make time. You don't have to take time away from your family or work. You can you can be part of it and um, and still live that experience even if uh, remotely. So I do think that there will be con- a continuation for it. But you know, people are eager to get back out there. And I think if there is a, a good, smart, equal balance between things, you can potentially still have the in person events. Uh, because let's face it, they're they're different also types of personalities. I mean, with COVID, there were people who have absolutely suffered, you know, not speaking to another human being. And then there were other people who absolutely loved, you know, the fact that they can just look finally and get something done. <laughs> right. So, you know, if we can accommodate both, I believe that both can be potentially wonderful ways of still continuing to communicate and spreading the message. Okay. But in terms of budget allocation, are you shifting more towards one? Do you see that happening? That's an interesting question. Um, depends the opportunity, to be honest with you. Do we Dude, aside from the Brunello Barolo tasting, we also calmed down a lot on the Zoom, you know, just a lot on the interactive tastings, just mainly because we're also getting into this new norm, uh, question mark, question mark, question mark. And you sit there and, you know, I think during COVID, everybody was doing pretty much the same thing and it was almost becoming overbearing. You know, you, you, you don't want to overwhelm someone so much that the idea of hopping on one more Zoom call, they would rather shoot themselves in the foot. You want to be able to have that, you know, positive balance to it. So I do think it's, it's you know, right now we're trying to mediate in what is worth it, what is interesting, what is going to captivate attentions, and also gauging what people want to hear. Because, you know, when you're speaking face to face with someone with 30 other producers, they're, they're walking around, they're walking around and they're living that experience. When you're on a Zoom call, you're kind of commandeering that time for them. So I can't tell you, you know, it's always that, um, sorry, I mean, I know this is a little bit unrelated, but we, we, we were all part of that segment of people who would conduct Zooms and half of the people would have their screen off and you're wondering if they're out, out gardening or if they're actually there participating. So, um, you know, there's always that, uh, you know, that question mark. Well, that was that was true, too, when they're present, looking at their answering their emails and all that kind of stuff. But OK, let me kind of turn around and ask the question this way. How should brands expect to support the importer in the market? And what I'm speaking of there is I use the phrase death of work work with. You know, distributors don't want to waste rather than invest the time in taking somebody off the street to do a milk run with a VIP from, from the company who's coming. Those things are changing and they're being implemented as standards in, in the distributors. We're not doing work with anymore. So what do you tell your suppliers 
are the tools that you need to work with to influence district to get a disproportionate share of distributor attention than your brand warrants by sales alone. Absolutely. I mean, I do think that just, you know, the work widths are still, they are a little bit coming back. I mean, we have gotten requests from a few wineries that they do want to come back into the States. But they want them, but to the distributors. And my sense is no. <laughs> yeah, no, of course. And, you know, once they come in, you you also ask for, you know, the distributor to give you that time because, you know, you need that uh, synergy to work with. So you, you still have a little bit of that. But, you know, before COVID, to be honest with you, I, it was one of my it was one of my uh, points of you know, being uncomfortable was there were too many work with and especially because all, all the producers want to go to like the same four markets, right? And if you if you hire someone, let's say in New York, my question was, are these guys ever going out and actually selling wine? Or are they, you know, you know, accommodating one producer, then the other, then the other, then the other. So, you know, I'm, I'm sort of happy that there, there has been a little bit of a, of a release in that sense, because I, I do believe that it, it allows our team to focus more on the entire portfolio rather than, you know, um, Joe for four days or Tom for other four days. Um, but in order to support the market for, um, you know, as a continuum, as a continuity, um, we do, you know, we we require flexibility. So obviously things are going to, what they are today are going to change tomorrow. We require, you know, obviously some form of a budget of investment in order to be able to reach certain channels, whether they're off-premise, on-premise, change-driven, whatever it may be at this point. Uh, we require consistency. But for the most part, we have seen, we're still in that really un- unpredictable moment because we have oversold our Brunellos and our Barolos this year. We are, you know, we're generating I've I've never seen our Barolo and Brunello producers this happy. I mean, I'm I'm expecting a fruit basket and or, or or some flowers. I mean, this is you know it's still a wonderful moment. But going away from that, the you know we I got definitely consistency, uh, a marketing budget, you know, and just being flexible at this point. We do you know we do ask for that. Okay, so back to 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 focus on the individual brands. How do you tell a given brand's story? in this world of internet and social media dominated post-pandemic world? I mean, have you guys developed expertise in working in social media or in the uh, online world where we have sites like Divino and Wine Searcher and so forth? Well, we were having this conversation the other day. It's interesting that we're talking about it. Um, I, I kind of took a different approach, to be honest with you. I mean, I'm, I'm an active Instagram user. And, and during COVID at the beginning, I would pay attention to wine posts and everybody's posting about their scores. And you're like, oh, okay, cool. Awesome. And then towards the end of the pandemic, it became redundant. It, it literally became one of those things where it, it didn't, everybody was doing the same thing. And it was almost like sensory numbness as far as that went. So I... I actually asked the company and I was like, guys, I think we need to put a hold on our social media right now, because unless we have a clear message or an educational piece, just boasting ourselves right now, I really don't feel that it differentiates. It might almost be, you know, uh, uncomfortable to some degree. Um, but yes, the online world has taken over the, the, Advice from the experts is give us as much information as possible and this and that. And although I do believe the online world has its benefits, at the end of the day, you're a search page amongst so many other search page. It's sort of like going on to, you know, wine.com. When I go on to wine.com, I already know what I'm looking for. And it's, it's a little, you know, you always sit there and question. And you're like, well, the wines that you're suggesting, are they based on, you know, 
would I like them? Are they, are they based on a certain type of algorithm? How do, how do I trust this? You know, it's, it's, it's very, it can be very, it, it can be a search engine that can literally take away four hours of exploration if you're that type of person. Or it can, you know, it can be very stagnant as far as that goes. So I, there are pros and cons that I've I've witnessed through social media. Yeah, but if you're going to be in the conversation, then that that that's that that's the point. Is uh, you're either in the conversation or you're not, and if you're not, you're dead. <laughs> so that's my point of view. You are, but I mean, it's the same question that I would do. Some, you know, unless you are a, a winery that already has a very well founded brand in the world of major online searches. I'm not talking about wine clubs and smaller ones, because I do believe that those have more of a visibility and more value, especially if you are not in the top 10 fabulous wineries of the world. But at the end of the day, like, you know, you don't want to get lost in the endless pages of, of, of someone's library either. So, you know, the great thing and what, you know, the great thing about the wine world is you can be anybody and still be part of it. What I love about our job is the storytelling, the mouth, the being being able to be a mouthpiece, you know, being able to go to a dinner and speak personally about these families and invoke that emotion. Because, um, you know, we're drinking the product, but we're drinking literally people, not literally, but we're drinking that experience that we lived. And I feel that online, yes, you you can go as far as being able, incredibly poetic with great pictures, but it's different to transmit really and get that eye contact, that gauge. And as we all do in, in our tastings, Sometimes it's not about the wine. How many times have we poured wine and that person will stop us dead in the tracks and be like, I remember that beautiful trip that I took to Tuscany. I remember being here. Our car broke down. We went to the restaurant, had the most beautiful experience. And the wine almost goes into secondary motion. But that experience that they're living in that moment and that twinkle in their eyes because it's all about our, us in our lives, right? Like it's all about our unique experiences. Really, they dominate everything. So, I mean, obviously, you know, in a certain type of range, and that is the connection that I do feel is a little bit more difficult to get to grasp. Yeah. And I I agree with that hundred percent. I mean, the way I phrased it, um, and it's true of every, every industry, but in in wine in particular, you know, if you can't bring people to Tuscany, how can you bring the experience of having been in Tuscany to them? The idea that there are different ways for people to interact. We've seen a lot of people doing, you know, vineyard cams and real life, real time interviews with winemakers who are, you know, out in the vineyard and you can see the weather and those kinds of things. It's giving them the experience, even though you physically can't be there, you can do all the things over the web that you you never used to be able to do, which is on, on time dialogue, you know. Uh, but it's also fickle and uh, sorry, I'm, I'm just going to throw this in there completely left field, go, go. sort of like the online world kind of gives you this still frame into that moment, right? And, and and what we love about people is that they have their days. So you can have someone who's, who's having particularly not a very expressive day, like a, a Zoom, whatever is going on, and it kind of doesn't really transmit the full value. But when you're traveling and when you have that moment, you get to see people in different moments, in different segments. And it, it's, it's sort of a little bit, you know... It, Sometimes it's great and other times, I mean, what's happened to us. And I know this producer and I know he's the funniest person in the whole wide world. And he was just not having that particular day. And you wonder, did you ever, did you really transmit that how beautiful you are and how great you are into the hearts of the people that are listening? Last question on e-commerce has become a major thing. Certainly um, uh, for domestic wineries, it's been the lifeline during the pandemic that's allowed them to sell direct to consumers literally bypass the three-tier system. It's 
it's legal to do that. It's not legal to do that for imported wines. There's a lot of people working on potential solutions uh, to this thing. Where do you guys sit and, and how are you involved in e-commerce of imported wines? So we, aside from importing and exporting a, a beautiful array of wineries, we also produce our own brands. So with the e-commerce, um, you know, everybody during the pandemic sort of switched on to that that portal because that was their 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 outlet into the to the world basically. So there's a lot of e-commerce options out there. Um, whether it's personal winery or whether it's through a third party, there are ways to get your wines out there. We have started with our own brands to do e-commerce mainly in Europe. We do we do very limited in the United States because our you know distribution network is very 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 solid and um, you know we work well we work well with people so I have to say we're not very we tend to be a little bit less proactive in that area to be honest with you we still prefer you know going back to distributors I mean you know for example we were talking about relationships before and wine warehouse in California we've been with them for fifty one years so we have that. Part of that, you know, we talk about the relationship with wineries, but we also have the relationship with the distributor. So when the distributor says, oh, my God, you know, here comes Emson, you know, we didn't, you know, we weren't founded yesterday. They know exactly how we work. They, they're ready for us. Yeah, yeah, right. And I think that's something that's changing, too, that the people you'll, you're dealing with have changed the hierarchies and structures and response, roles and responsibilities at distributors are changing too. So it's no longer the same guys that you used to talk to all the time and see at all the, the you know, WSWA and all the shows, there's, there's new people playing. Maybe I've noticed that simply because I'm older. But anyway, back to summing up what I, I like to end my um, interviews with the question of what's the big takeaway of, of all the things that we just talked about, someone in the trade listening to this um, interview, what can they take away and put to use immediately in a practical sense? So in the practical sense, I, um, I'll give two different um, points here that I find fundamental just to advise everyone. So when we were talking about what, what wineries should expect and what they should do, working with an importer, we carve out a specific, uh, we tailor make a program for the winery. So it doesn't mean based on volume or who you are that everybody's going to get the same treatment. There are different routes and different ways of working with a distributor. There are different timeframes to expect. What I always encourage wineries to do is, you know, be honest on how you would sell your wine. Um, be honest on what you're expecting. And at that point, you know, but also be patient. You know, good things come in time. You know, work. Be be communicative. Um, it's it's okay to to get angry every once in a while. It's normal. But at the same time, this is a relationship. And a relationship, the longer it lasts, the more you have to give to the future. In a world in which, you know, you swipe left, swipe right, jump, change, you know, a lot of the key people that we still know and talk to in the industry, they always say, you know, think twice before jumping. Everything, everybody has a great spiel. Everybody can over deliver. You know, we, we're walking business cards at the end of the day, but it's the facts that really matter. So, you know, that's one thing that I always encourage people to put into practice. Um, also synergy, you know, it's, whether it's a handshake or whatever it may be. These are the people that are telling your story. And see if you're aligned with them. A lot of times what happens is that there's no, you know, there's one expectation and there's a different DNA. Every importer has their own DNA. They have their own way of working. They have their own identity. And that's what they put forth into the market. And it's comfortable to find an importer. But at the same time, make sure that your vision aligns and you have the same values. 
because that's going to be really important moving forward. If my value is to be with you for the long run and weather a bad storm and your value is I don't have patience for this crap and I just want to see it tomorrow, we might not be right for each other. And, you know, these things do happen. The other thing I would like to advise mainly on a market is, you know, starting pre-COVID, but also COVID and post-COVID, the wine world is changing. Everybody wants to be on, on, on the wine list. And I understand that. But the wine lists are getting shorter. People want more flexibility. People want people, space is the biggest issue that we're having today. Literally, distributors are buying up whatever they can. So you need to, I encourage people to understand that, um, you know, people want the flexibility to change wine every month. People want the flexibility of not being bowed to, there's no more, you know, the white tablecloth, the big phone books, you know, that we used to see back in the nineties of like, you know, those, those wine lists, those are becoming rare and rare. So to be patient with that and to understand that, you know, the, the, there is a change happening in the wine world. So you know, the, all these things are taking place. Okay. Um, so a big thank you to Tara Empson for sharing her family's story for Empson USA Imports. This is Steve Ray saying thank you for listening this week, and we'll be back next Monday with another. We'll be back next Monday with another interesting edition of Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People on the Italian Wine Podcast. Thanks for listening to this episode of Italian Wine Podcast. Brought to you by Vinitali Academy, home of the gold standard of Italian wine education. Do you want to be the next ambassador? Apply online at vinitaliinternational.com for courses in London, Austria, and Hong Kong, the 27th to the 29th of July. Remember to subscribe and like Italian Wine Podcast, and catch us on SoundCloud, Spotify, and wherever you get your pods. You can also find our entire back catalog of episodes at italianwinepodcast.com. guys, I'm Joy Livingston and I am the producer of the Italian Wine Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are the only wine podcast that has been doing a daily show since the pandemic began. This is a labor of love and we are committed to bringing you free content every day. Of course, this takes time and effort, not to mention the cost of equipment, production and editing. We would be grateful for your donations, suggestions, requests and ideas. For more information on how to get in touch, go to italianwinepodcast.com.